Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Have you ever wondered why our Savior was born in a manger or a feed trough for animals? Well, we're about to find out the answer in today's program as we continue our Why Christmas series with Dr. John Newfeld. So let's turn now to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, with this message entitled, Why a Manger? When I was a little boy, there were several things about the Christmas story I simply didn't understand. I didn't know what swaddling cloths were. I know it was explained to me that during those times, babies were wrapped in long strips of cloths like bandages, but I couldn't quite get my head around that, and so eventually I just dropped it. I just stopped asking what and why and eventually just accepted it. It was just one of those things you said at Christmas. Baby Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, and after a while, I think I got it. It was a custom in Jesus' day after the birth of the child to cut its umbilical cord and wash it in water and then rub the child with salt and then bind the baby tightly with strips of cloth about four to five inches wide and about six yards long. You kind of wrapped them up almost like an Egyptian mummy and that would keep the baby warm and help the baby to feel secure. And then, of course, baby Jesus was laid in a manger and I don't think I really understood that as a kid either. Now, I was a farm kid, and and we never had mangers on the farm. I know that we had mangers in church during our Christmas scenes, but I couldn't imagine what they were for other than to place the little baby Jesus into. They were kind of like a crude little crib with hay in them. As far as I remember, they always were fit on a rickety little stand with a kind of an X underneath them to hold them up. I couldn't have told you what they were for in the real world. Where would you ever find such a contraption except that they were made to hold the baby Jesus? And so I thought that a manger was a specialized bed for baby Jesus. And I really stopped asking why about the manger, just like I did about the swaddling claws. Imagine my surprise. Years later, I discovered that the barn that baby Jesus was born in was completely unlike the barns that we had on the farm. They were just basically caves in the hillside where where animals could be sheltered from harsh conditions. And the manger, well, it didn't look anything like what we had in church. It was made of stone with a hollow groove carved into it. And then I had an aha. Jesus wasn't born in a barn placed in a manger. He was born in an animal shelter cave and placed into a stone feeding trough. But he was kept warm because they bound him so tightly in cloths. That I understood, for for we had hollowed out grooves in the concrete floors in our barn, which served as a feeding trough for the animals. And when I compared our feeding troughs to the biblical account, well, quite frankly, as a boy, I was shocked. Who would lay a baby in a feeding trough? Well, according to the biblical text, there was no room for them in the inn, and this was the only place where they could lay a baby. No beds, no quickly constructed cribs, and no traditional church pageantry manger. And that started me thinking. Had I imagined the story in a way that it actually never happened? And the first time I went to Bethlehem, I was taken to the Church of the Nativity. You see, in A.D. 326, Helen, who was the mother of the Roman Emperor Constantine, traveled to the Holy Land and attempted to actually identify sites in which the biblical story happened. She identified a cave thought to have been the birth site of Jesus, and she commissioned a church to be built over top of that site. And today that church, the Church of the Nativity, is jointly owned by the Roman Catholic Church and the Armenian Church and the Greek Orthodox Church. 
And almost anyone visiting Bethlehem goes to that church to see the traditional birth site of Jesus. And when I first visited the church, I had to stand in a very long lineup, slowly making my way to the front. And then it went down some steps, and then I eventually entered into a very small room containing a curtain hanging down, but not all the way to the ground, in which you could stoop down and look into a small area that contains a star on the ground, supposed to have been the exact location of the birth of Jesus. And that star contains a Latin inscription which reads, Here of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ was born. But the place when I visited was crowded, filled with an incense I was unfamiliar with, and it made it hard to breathe. And there were 15 hanging lanterns in that small room, each of them belonging to the various three denominations, making the room, at least to me, appear dingy and filled with unfamiliar shapes that seemed, well, gaudy and over-decorated, and the place was smoky. And I was glad to get out into the open air. It was not a moving experience at all. In fact, the thousands who all bowed down to kiss the star left me wondering what diseases were left behind and and who was charged with disinfecting that star and to keep all the kissing pilgrims from getting sick. You know, I never kissed the star and I never touched the star. In fact, I never even took a picture of the star. In fact, I hardly spent any time in that crowded, suffocating little room. I, I just walked out. I left thinking about whether what I had just witnessed was a kind of a parable of the entire Christmas story. See, over the years, traditions and structures have been built up over the birth narrative. Clouds of incense seem to obscure the birth of Christ so that the beauty and the simplicity of the actual event become obscured by the traditions and structures of men. And that brings me to my question. Why was Jesus placed into a stone-feeding trough? Is it just to show the humility of the Son of God? Well, yep, certainly it does. The idea that there was no room for them in the end, and that this was the only place available to house God's entrance into the world in the form of his Son. If you're hearing the story for the first time, well, the context of it is entirely shocking. Christ coming to us in meekness mirrors Christ riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, not on a war horse, but on a humble donkey. Humility, simplicity, complete identification with the least of all of these. All those are the treasured aspects of the Christmas story that we must tell if we're going to tell it well. But is there more? Well, I, th- I think there is more. So let's trace the story of the birth of Christ as Luke tells the account in, in Luke chapter 2. So we begin with chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, as we've already seen earlier this week, God moved the hearts of the leaders in Rome so that the ancient prophecy of Micah would be fulfilled. Caesar Augustus had no idea that the birth of the Messiah had to be in Bethlehem. He had no idea that his taxation scheme was fulfilling a prophecy that would have been given over 750 years earlier. But that's precisely what happened. While Caesar was thinking about making sure that the revenues of the empire would be properly cared for, he was being guided by the unseen hand of God to fulfill the most important moment in human history. We know a fair amount about Caesar Augustus. Although his climb to power was ruthless, once he was in power, he was in fact a benevolent and even wise dictator. He showed great tact in dealing with his subjects. 
He learned to respect the various customs and religious convictions of various people. And so, in order to register people properly, he seems to have understood that the best way to do this for the Jews was to make sure that the Jewish people would feel that their ancestral tribes were respected. And then Luke adds a historical note in verse 2. This was the first registration, he says, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. You know, for the reader who understood the times, Luke mentions the first census indicating that this was not the last time that this occurred. You know, some historians feel that there is evidence that a major census like this was conducted every 14 years by Rome. But what we have in Luke appears to have been the very first in a new system of taxation enacted by a very thorough and orderly ruler of the Roman Empire. And with this as a background, Luke carries on in his narrative. Verses 3 to 5 state, And all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, for Jews, knowing your family tree or your line of descent was absolutely crucial. See, Joseph knows he is a direct descendant of King David. In fact, if we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 6, it indicates that David's family and clan actually held a yearly sacrifice in Bethlehem. We have to assume that in some fashion, family records would have been kept there, and Joseph would have been aware of his place in the royal family line. I mean, we get that very clearly from reading Matthew's genealogy, where Joseph knows exactly where he fits in. Now, How many people would have, in some fashion, needed to travel to Bethlehem in keeping with the dictates of Caesar Augustus? Well, we can't say because, I mean, we weren't there, but clearly there were enough people that by the time Mary and Joseph actually arrived in that place, the place was crowded with people so much so that they couldn't find a room. Or was that actually the case? Well, we're going to discuss that when we come back. As we begin to unpack what really happened at Jesus' birth, we come to an important but perhaps overlooked fact about the manger itself. We often picture nativity scenes or movies that depict Jesus being born in a stable, but we definitely do not see the manger for what it really is, just a feeding trough for the animals. What deeper lessons can we take away from how Christ was brought into the world? Well, we'll discover this when we come back. Thanks for listening today. You know, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a glorious thing we celebrate every year at Christmas. And it's also why, as a ministry, we exist to tell the story of God and His redemption of mankind as revealed in Scripture. Would you help us today to carry on this mission? Please make a special gift towards our year-end financial goal so that more Canadians can be reached with the life-giving power of God's Word. To give, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. According to Luke chapter 2, verse 5, Joseph shows up with Mary, whom Luke calls Joseph's betrothed. 
And that presents us with some problems because according to Matthew's account, after the angel appeared to Joseph informing him that Mary, his betrothed, was pregnant from a divine act of the Holy Spirit, he did not hesitate but immediately took her as his wife. He did this to make sure that he immediately removed from her the shame of being pregnant while merely being betrothed. See, most of us who know the Christmas story have had betrothal explained to us, so it's one of those why questions we actually understand quite well. Betrothal was so much more than engagement. If it was to be broken, it required a formal divorce, and yet any betrothed couple who engaged in sexual relations were guilty of a very serious sin against God. And that explains why after Joseph learns the true nature of Mary's condition, he marries her immediately in order to cover over what would have been her shame. But in Luke's account, when Mary is about to give birth, he calls her the betrothed of Joseph, so we're left with a question, well, which is it? And I think the answer is that it's both. Yes, Mary and Joseph were formally married at the time of Jesus' birth, but in order not to confuse the matter, Luke calls her betrothed so as to make it abundantly clear that the two had never had relations until Christ was born. See, undoubtedly, both Mary and Joseph were clear that Jesus had to be born of a virgin, and this is safeguarded in their attitude to each other. Now, before we move on, one thing needs to be emphasized. According to Luke 2, 6-7, we read, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Uh, We should notice how Luke phrases this. Jesus is her firstborn son. So the natural way of reading this is that after Mary had given birth to Jesus, she continued to have more children, but these children were born in the normal way as the result of the union between Joseph and Mary. The fact that Jesus had brothers is made very clear in the rest of the New Testament. For example, in Matthew 13, 55, when Jesus is being disbelieved in his hometown of Nazareth, we read, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And so clearly the idea that Mary remained a virgin forever, well, it's just plain wrong. Joseph and Mary had a marriage and a family just like anyone else, with that one exception, when before they came together, she was found with child from the Holy Spirit. When she gave birth, she was a virgin. Now we have the picture. Augustus wants to tax the Jews but not offend their sensibility. Joseph has married Mary, and yet it's really quite complicated. Together, the couple is on their way to Bethlehem, and when they arrive, well, let's see how Luke describes it to us. Verse 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, let's be honest. Ever since Luke wrote that line, many of us have been given that poor innkeeper a very hard time. Didn't you pay attention that a pregnant woman was at the door? I mean, how do you feel now that, that you know that you closed the door on the Savior of the world? Don't you know that you've become the archetype for everyone after this who has had no room for the Christ child in their hearts? No room. No room indeed. What kind of a man leaves no room for baby Jesus? And since we're asking the why questions, perhaps we could slow down a little and ask, why didn't this man have room for Mary and Joseph in his inn? And even further, why didn't all the innkeepers in Bethlehem, however many there were, all turn this young couple out? 
Now, ancient inns were actually not like modern hotels or motels, each with their private rooms. Inns often required that guests bring their own blankets or, failing that, that they wrap themselves in their own robes so that the idea of a nicely turned down bed with proper sheets and, and towels and amenities in an ensuite, well, that's not how it worked. Often inns were two-storied affairs. Sometimes animals were stabled on the bottom. Lying by them were the servants in charge watching over the pack animals. Rooms were sparse and often shared by more than one. Since the word for inn that Luke uses is the same word he will later use to describe the upper room, where Jesus and his disciples shared the Passover meal. So you see, it's not impossible to see the inns as having but one large room with adjoining beds. And whatever the situation, one thing becomes clear. There was no room in Bethlehem that allowed for a pregnant mother to give birth. The stable afforded a privacy that an inn could not afford. But that still doesn't yet answer the question of why there was no room in the inn. Was Bethlehem just overcrowded? Or had the officials, soldiers, bureaucrats from the Roman government taken and occupied all public buildings? Well, it's possible that the innkeeper, whoever he was, had been ordered by Rome that the inn was for Roman officials. Now, of course, we can't say because we weren't there, but I do notice several things, and they are worthy of consideration. I notice the contrast in the Bible story that really are quite striking. On the one hand, when when Mary first encounters the angel, the angel says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. And yet, when the highly favored one gives birth, she's in an animal shelter. The angel told her at the beginning that the child she bore would be called the Son of the Most High God. And here now is the Son of the Most High God laid in a feeding trough. And we are forced to ask why. And with that, I see even more contrast. Caesar Augustus, in his position of power, sends out a decree, and with that decree, he determines that the Son of God, who has a position infinitely higher than that of the Emperor of Rome, yet the Emperor of Rome dictates where this child will be born, and that's precisely the image we're supposed to entertain. If God entered into our world as a man, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, this thing we call the incarnation should signal us how we are to think about this event. See, most Bible teachers speak about the incarnation as an act of divine condescension. That means that God stepped down, not up, when he became a man. That's what the Apostle Paul spoke about when he, in Philippians 2, verse 7, says, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So let's get a perspective of this thing. God is infinitely greater than any human being. God's glory, his attributes, his being is so far superior to the creature he has created that any earthly comparison of greatest to the least is not a fitting comparison to the incarnation. And had God stepped into the human race, into the most magnificent palace ever created, this still would be an amazing act of divine condescension. Our problem would have been we would not have understood it. And so, just so that we would understand the humility that God assumed by becoming a man, he illustrates this by being born in a cave and laid in a stone feeding trough so that we would grasp the extent to which the Son of God descended so that he might become our Savior. And whenever we feel we've been unjustly humiliated, please remember the one who chose to be so humiliated for your salvation. 
The feeding trough is a picture that God wants us to fix in our minds as we think about the very popular Bible verse. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We should, every Christmas, approach the subject of the love of God both with overwhelming gratitude but also with a deep sense of astonishment. We should tell him, dear Jesus, If you had not been born and laid in a feeding trough, I would never have understood the extent to which you humbled yourself for my salvation. So when we retell the story of Christmas, we should make it as primitive and as rough and as poverty-stricken as we can so that we might remember the love of our Savior who humbled himself for our account. John, that was a helpful message that helped me understand a lot more about the significance of some of these things at Jesus' birth. But why do you think we have a tendency to soften things or make things comfortable for us? A a warm manger, a beautiful star, all these types of things. Why do we do that? Well, I know that there are some traditions that have arisen around Christmas time, and and they are traditions that are meant to make it uh, feel that way. It's uh, often helpful uh, to teach kids about this thing in in a way that kind of feels comfortable and inviting, and they feel this emotional tie to the baby Jesus. And, And some of it, I suppose, is fine, but I am arguing that we ought to get more deeply into the Christmas story so that we we strip back all of these other images and get to the raw thing itself. Because the thing itself, I use the word divine condescension, it has to be that. We have to see in the Christmas story how far God humbled himself to become like one of us. Other than that, we will never understand the story rightly. When we imagine our Lord was born and then actually laid in a feeding trough, it isn't a very majestic image. But from today's study, it becomes clear why God chose it to be this way. How else would we grasp the significance of the Almighty God descending to earth to become one of us? The most humble of acts was the Incarnation, and the birth of Jesus demonstrated this. Have you realized the impact of such a profound truth this Christmas? May we continue to meditate on what we've learned so far about the wise surrounding Christmas. Don't miss our final message of this series tomorrow with Dr. John Newfeld as he answers the question, Why a Savior? Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As Christians, how do we maintain and nurture a committed, mature walk with God every day? Is there a secret to this? Well, at Back to the Bible Canada, we believe that there's no magic formula whether you're a new believer or you've been a Christian for most of your life. Rather, it's through the steady disciplines of prayer, reading God's Word, and applying it to our lives that will help us grow in our daily walk with Christ. Of course, these disciplines are just part of what make up our faith but they are supremely important. So to that end, we've designed a special exclusive resource that will help you center your daily walk in Christ and His Word. Quiet Spaces, a 30-day devotional, is a wonderful collection of 30 biblical reflections that are not only rich theologically, but also contain practical points of application. Dr. Newfeld's devotional booklet features content from some of his most popular broadcasts this year, including Heaven, I Will Tell, Romans, the Heart of the Gospel, and many more. We hope you'll use Quiet Spaces to encourage your walk with God in the new year or any time. Ask for your devotional today as our free gift to you by calling 
1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or sending us an email at info at backtothebible.ca.